Good afternoon. Welcome. It's wonderful to see so many people willing to brave a hurricane to, a, to attend a talk with catastrophe in the title. Uh, there will be connections, and it will be worth it, I promise you. Uh, I'm Terry Price, co-director of the Gary L. McDowell Institute. The Institute is dedicated to its namesakes, values, and principles, free inquiry, thoughtful deliberation, and rigorous discussion. Our programs, including today's lecture, draw on the history of ideas to answer important questions in ethics, law, and politics. Over this academic year, an ideologically diverse group of student fellows will discuss, and if we're lucky, answer some of these questions. As I've emphasized before at McDowell Institute events, they don't earn any academic credit for their efforts, no exams, no papers, no grades, just the benefits of open and honest debate with their peers. We have 22 student fellows this year, many of whom are with us today. I'd like to ask them to please stand and be recognized. I also want to recognize the Pauli Family Foundation for making today's programming possible. I'm now going to turn things over to Dr. Jess Jessica Flanagan, who will introduce our speaker. Dr. Flanagan is Associate Professor of Leadership Studies in Philosophy, Politics, Economics, and Law. She is also the Richard L. Morrill Chair in Ethics and Democratic Values, and I'm proud to say one of the faculty discussion leaders in our Student Fellows Program. Jess. Thank you all for coming out tonight. It's great to see everybody. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Alex McQueen, who is an associate professor in the departments of political science and history at Stanford University. And she's currently visiting at the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University. Her research focuses on early modern political theory and the history of political thought, especially political thought in international relations. In terms of the substance of her research, she writes about humanity's longstanding tendencies to swing between hope and fear, between utopianism and apocalypticism about politics, and between optimism and pessimism about our fellow citizens' moral capacities. Her first book, Political Realism in Apocalyptic Times, available right outside, uh, makes a great Christmas present coming up. Um, <laughs> just giving you a plug. <laughs> um, so her first book, Political Realism in Apocalyptic Times, was published in 2018 by Cambridge Press. There she describes seemingly apocalyptic moments from the past and investigates how thinkers in those contexts, including Machiavelli, Hobbes, and Morgenthau, reasoned about politics in a time that seemed to some like the end of the world. One commentator describes this book as a masterful work of intellectual history that, quote, manages the rare feat of making canonical authors speak to our concerns while keeping her reading anchored in their context, thus avoiding both the political sterilization by historicization that one finds in much of the history of political thought and the ventriloquizing of the classic, which often results in poorly concealed appeals to authority. This is a difficult feat. Uh, she's currently continuing to advance our understanding of Hobbes in the history of political thought in a book project, which is about Hobbes, entitled Absolving God, Hobbes's Scriptural Politics. And today she will speak about many of these themes in a lecture entitled Realism, Ethics, and Catastrophe. So please join me in, doc in welcoming Dr. Allison McQueen. Thanks so much.
Thanks so much. Um, let me just get things started here. There we go. All right, so thank you so much for, for coming out. Uh, it does, as has already been noted, seem appropriate to be discussing this topic today, given the hurricane that's pummeling the states to the south of us and we're experiencing some of its effects right here. This image is from a different catastrophe in my part of the world in California. These are the orange skies over San Francisco during the 2020 wildfire season in California. So my talk today pursues some questions that were raised but not answered in my book, Political Realism in Apocalyptic Times. You've heard a little bit already about what the book does. It looks at three canonical political realists, Niccolo Machiavelli writing in the Renaissance, Thomas Hobbes writing during the English Civil War, and Hans Morgenthau, a 20th century thinker who you'll hear more about today, who wrote during the Cold War, and how they responded to hopes and fears about the end of the world in their respective times because each thinker lived during time when powerful political actors, sometimes religious actors, thought the world was ending. But each of these thinkers, Machiavelli, Hobbes, and Morgenthau, were also political realists. Each saw politics as inescapably a realm of conflict, of power and interest, each was suspicious of our attempts to moralize or idealize politics, and each was attentive to the limits of political action. And these realist commitments made these thinkers very wary about the use of apocalyptic rhetoric in politics. Yet each also at some point or another in their own writing career kind of succumbed to apocalyptic rhetoric themselves to advance their own political projects. Now in the book, I argued in favor of that basic realistic wariness of using apocalyptic end of the world rhetoric in politics. I argued that we should be very careful about it with invoking the end of the world because it's a rhetoric of now or never, rather than careful deliberation. It's a rhetoric of good versus evil, rather than moral complexity. And it's a rhetoric of hubristic certainty, rather than tragic choices. But one question I kept getting from frustrated but enthusiastic readers was surely if apocalyptic rhetoric is ever appropriate to use, it's gotta be in cases of existential threats, like nuclear war and climate change. And the thought seemed to go, people are just too complacent about those threats, that we need to scare them into action. And I thought, well, that's a great question. And it's the one I want to explore with you today. 
Is there a realist case or any sort of case for scaring people with apocalyptic imagery and rhetoric to avert threats to our collective human survival? So the talk today is divided into three parts. I'll talk to you first about one of the figures from the book, the 20th century thinker Hans Morgenthau, who came to embrace albeit reluctantly, an apocalyptic strategy in response to the threat of all-out thermonuclear war. Second, I'll ask whether we should follow Morgenthau and embrace a similar strategy in the case of climate change. Is scaring people with apocalyptic scenarios of climate disaster salutary, healthy, or is it dangerous? And third, I'll draw a little bit on the ancient Athenian thinker Aristotle to help us see what it might look like to fear well about climate change, a kind of paradoxical idea, but what it could look like to fear well. So let's start with the nuclear fear case. It took a lot to scare Hans Morgenthau. He was a German, Jewish, scholar who'd been born in 1904. He'd seen World War I as a child. He was lucky enough to escape Germany in 1932. And he settled in in the political science department at the University of Chicago in the 40s in time to witness the dawn of the nuclear age. So he'd seen his share of terrifying events. And he made it his life's work to explain these events, to explain war and peace, to explain conflict and diplomacy. And his book, Politics Among Nations, which was first published in 1948, quickly became one of the most influential books in post-war America. It shaped the teaching of international politics and the practice of foreign relations for decades. So chances are, if you are at a university um, in the 1950s, in the 1960s, 1970s, you took an international relations class, you would have been assigned this book. I just found out it was assigned more than all the other books on international politics combined as a college textbook for decades. Um, and its admirers included Henry Kissinger and George Kennan and numerous others. The book was inescapably realist in its approach. Morgenthau claimed, like let me unpack what I mean by that, that politics was inherently conflictual. Whatever we might hope for our political life together, most political outcomes are determined by the clashes of power and interest. He was suspicious of attempts to moralize politics. He was a suspicious of those who would turn conflicts of power and interest into battles of good versus evil. And he was attentive to the limits of political action. How even well-motivated political act actions often have unforeseen and terrible consequences. And so for realists like Morgenthau, politics is inescapably tragic. It's the same damn thing over and over again. From the Peloponnesian War that Thucydides wrote about to the Cold War 
that 20th century thinkers wrote about. And now you may think this is really depressing, this kind of tragic view of politics, but there's actually something strangely comforting about it. I mean, if politics is just the same damn thing over and over again, then we can turn to the past for guidance. Keep calm and carry on, sure in the knowledge that we've been there before. And that was a large part of what Morgenthau was trying to do. He's trying to leverage examples from the past to help us understand and push through the challenges of the present. But what happens when we're forced to confront a genuinely novel threat, a threat to the survival of humankind, a threat unlike anything we've ever encountered before? And for him, for Morgenthau, this was the threat of nuclear war, especially after the development of the H-bomb and thermonuclear weapons. And he found his tragic realism didn't offer him much guidance. A tragic perspective is maybe a valuable antidote to, as he put it, a civilization that likes to see novelty in history where there is none. But it's not well suited to a world that perceives, as he put it, but dimly, the genuine novelty with which nuclear power confronts it. So he turned to a politics of fear. He wrote an essay, Death in the Nuclear Age, that appeared in Commentary Magazine in 1961, and that detailed in terrifying terms the cost that nuclear war would exact on humanity. And he subsequently devoted himself in other writings, in other talks, talks like this, to spreading that message of fear. Now, he wouldn't have embarked on this fear strategy lightly. He'd witnessed McCarthyism in the 1950s, and he'd witnessed it with a heavy heart, recognizing in his new home, America, the same fear tactics that he'd become accustomed to in the totalitarian regimes of Europe. In McCarthyism, Morgenthau saw how fear was used to create a climate of perpetual anxiety in which survival became an end in itself, where the everyday conflict and compromises of politics had to be put aside for calmer times that never seemed to come where debates about freedom and equality were cast as dangerously indulgent in the face of an overwhelming threat to collective survival. So why did he turn to this politics of fear? Why did he take the risk in indulging in this sort of politics to raise the alarm about nuclear war? Looking back, I mean, we might be forgiven, and I can see some of our audience members may remember this, uh, this period in America's history, we may be forgiven for thinking that Americans were already pretty scared. After all, this was the era of the doomsday clock, of duck and cover drills, of home fallout shelters. But I think we also tend to forget how strong the culture of nuclear denial and complacency was at the time. In fact, the U.S. government was actually interested in cultivating a sense of nuclear optimism and making all of us more okay about the prospect of nuclear war. In 1956, two years after the United, the United States' largest thermonuclear detonation at Bikini Atoll in the Marshall Islands, 
president eisenhower's national security council ordered a classified study of the effects of the threat of nuclear annihilation on american attitudes and the report concluded with an extraordinary statement of optimism an all-out nuclear war might provide an opportunity to quote make the very best of the very worst and to raise for a new hope for a new dynamics of the human race it is a vision indeed but where visions flourish nations endure in a series of works published in the early 1960s, the RAND strategist Herman um, Kahn, parodied in Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, was arguing that the United States could survive an all-out nuclear war and go on to lead relatively normal and happy lives. He predicted that survivors might enjoy a higher standard of living um, than the United States did between 1900 and 1930. Magazines like Time and Life were running features on civil defense that showed happy families emerging from their fallout shelters ready to build the world anew. Within a few days of a nuclear attack, a Time article predicted people might begin to emerge, quote, with trousers tucked into sock tops and sleeves tied around wrists, with hats, mufflers, gloves, and boots. The shelter dweller could venture forth to start ensuring his today and building for his tomorrow. And of course, for others, denial and complacency were coping strategies. So much of our life and our commitment to valuable projects like family and work depend on the assumption that there will be a tomorrow and a next year and a generation that comes after us, a world that will outlive us. So best not to think about nuclear war. So no wonder Morgenthau thought that Americans were in need of a healthy dose of nuclear terror. Like Herman Kahn, he thought that we must be willing to think about the unthinkable. But he worried that the optimism of Kahn and others seemed to make the unthinkable even more likely. Hopeful visions that we could survive or even prosper after an all-out nuclear war gave moral cover to wage one. And Morgenthau thought he needed to find a way to make the unthinkable less likely. So he offered a terrifying picture of mass nuclear death, deaths without meaning. And like other Jewish emigre scholars writing in the post-war era, he found in the Holocaust the closest parallel to the prospect of nuclear annihilation. There is meaning, he wrote, in Leonidas falling at Thermopylae, in Socrates drinking the cup of hemlock, in Jesus nailed to the cross. There can be no meaning in the slaughter of the innocent, the murder of six million Jews, the prospective nuclear destruction of say 50 million Americans and an equal number of Russians. With humans reduced to ashes, our remains would be unsalvageable, eliminating the most meaningful practices of mourning and commemoration, there simply would be no posterity. So this wouldn't just be the destruction of millions of people, it would also be the destruction of our common world, a world we've built across generations. And he asks us to imagine that destruction in truly apocalyptic proportions. 
Nuclear annihilation, he writes, is mass destruction both of persons and of things. It signifies the simultaneous destruction of tens of millions of people, of whole families, generations, and societies, of all the things they've inherited and created. It signifies total destruction of whole societies by killing their members, destroying their visible achievements, and therefore reducing the survivors to barbarism. Nuclear destruction destroys the meaning of death by depriving it of its individuality. It destroys the meaning of immortality by making both society and history impossible. It destroys the meaning of life by throwing life back upon itself. Now, we might be inclined to kind of dismiss Morgenthau's warnings now. After all, we avoided an all-out nuclear war. So if Morgenthau was a kind of prophet of doom, his prophecy so far has failed. But that was surely his intention. He was a self-defeating prophet of doom. He foretold a nuclear apocalypse in order to help us imagine and so to avoid the unthinkable. And I hasten to add his problem is still our problem. The nuclear threat has not gone away. Vladimir Putin insists that nuclear weapons are on the table in his war against Ukraine, and U.S. officials have promised catastrophic consequences if Putin makes good on those threats. So perhaps then we should have a bit of sympathy for poor Morgenthau. Whatever worries we might have about a politics of fear, we might with him think, surely it's appropriate to use terrifying apocalyptic imagery when the very survival of humankind is at stake. Or is it? And that's the question I want to move us to explore now by considering the existential threat that preoccupies many of us. And the main place we see these kind of apocalyptic fear appeals at work today is in the climate change debate. It's not hard to see why. For decades, scientists, policymakers, activists have used information to try and prompt action on climate change, to try and motivate us. Information conveyed in charts and graphs like these ones from the latest report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. I mean, we've been bombarded with these graphs. They've tried to change our behavior by giving us facts about the causes and consequences of climate change. They're using a strategy that we call the information deficit model which assumes that inaction on climate change is caused simply by a lack of information. But the results of this approach have been really mixed. On the one hand, there are now solid majorities of Americans who think climate change is happening and that it's caused by human beings. A solid majority now reports being at least somewhat worried about climate change. So as time passes, we, do, we are disagreeing less and less about the core facts. But despite these changes in belief and concern about climate change, nearly three quarters of Americans report that they're not actively engaging the issue as individuals, consumers, or political actors. And most are not even talking about the issue with friends, family, coworkers, and acquaintances. So what does that mean? It means that information and understanding may be helpful in motivating action, but it's not sufficient. We need something more. And so Morgenthau had faced a similar 
problem. He thought America was too complacent in the face of all-out nuclear war. And today's climate change activists think that America is too complacent in the face of the threat of global climate change. And it's for this reason that I think policymakers, activists, the media, even sometimes scientists themselves have turned to fear. And it's not just any kind of fear. It is apocalyptic, end-of-the-world kind of fear. And we see it in movies that dramatize climate change. We see it in books like David Wallace Wells's popular 2019 book, The Uninhabitable Earth, widely hailed as terrifying and apocalyptic. He tells us it's worse, much worse than we think. And we see it in the headlines that come out with each new IPCC report, right? Now or never, time is running out, fast track to climate disaster. And this appeal to fear is understandable. Fear makes threats salient to us. It makes them register with us. It focuses our attention on them. And when we face real risks and dangers, that's maybe a good response to have. Let's take an example. I'm going to choose a Californian one, something I worry about from time to time. Imagine hiking along a beautiful trail in California and coming face to face with a mountain lion. Hasn't happened to me yet, has happened to some of my students. Suddenly, what was a beautiful trail lined with golden grass and live oak trees is transformed for you into a threatening and lonely space. Your only option is to make yourself big, to back away slowly, if you've read all those good hikers' warnings about what to do. And that's what fear does to us, right? It foregrounds the threat, the mountain lion. It foregrounds the means of escape, backing up. And it backgrounds everything else. You're not taking in the trees and the grass anymore. You are focused on the threat. So when fear is working well, and this is an insight that goes back to Aristotle, no doubt even before, when fear is working well for us, it actually inclines us to deliberation. It inclines us to thinking about what to do to avert the threat. And evidence from research on climate change communication suggests that fear appeals have the same effect. They do make the threat of climate change salient to people. It registers with them. They are able to focus on it. So the problem of climate change becomes more salient for those presented with apocalyptic images that elicit fear and horror. And this is maybe especially valuable in the case of climate change, which really has to fight for salience. Why is that? There are a lot of reasons. As one of the students pointed out this afternoon, we've got lots of other stuff going on in our lives, right? It's, it's competing. Um, another reason is that the worst effects of climate change are, are probabilistic. They're not certain. There's a fair bit of uncertainty about what's going to happen. They're scientists' best guesses based on the data they have. Will things be as bad as the picture that Wallace Wells paints in The Uninhabitable Earth? Maybe, but not certainly. And threats that have that dimension of uncertainty are very hard to get people excited about. Second, of course, the very worst effects of climate change won't be felt by those of us in northern affluent countries like the United States. 
They will be felt and are being felt at their worst by poorer people in the global south. And of course, the very worst effects will be felt in this area by future generations. All of those are barriers to climate change being salient to us here today. And even if climate change were to become salient, even if it were to register with us as a threat, it has to compete for attention with other issues. People who study risk communication have hypothesized that we have a finite pool of worry. Any of you are, who are parents probably recognize this, right? There's only so much you can worry about at one time. And so when our concern with one risk goes up, our concern about other risks goes down. And so one of the things we find, for instance, is that concern about environmental risks decreased in the United States after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. The terrorism risk became more salient for us. And again, in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, it's just easiest for us to worry about one thing at a time. To be honest, it's probably healthiest as well. So the fact that eliciting fear makes climate change salient in face of those obstacles is a very alluring achievement, something that people get, ex communicators get excited about. And this point, you might be thinking, well, great, we're facing this existential threat, the future of humanity is on the line, let's all get to work and scare the crap out of people. Bring on the apocalyptic images of a ravaged world. Well, not so fast. There are some concerns we want to register about a politics of fear. So let's look at some familiar concerns, concerns about fear appeals generally. And I should say, none of these critics deny that scaring people can make a threat salient. They don't deny the benefits of fear appeals, but they worry that these appeals prevent us from fearing well, from fearing responsibly, from fear, fearing rationally about things. So let's put our ethical reasoning hats on and take a close look at some of these criticisms. The first criticism is a, is a kind of familiar one that fear appeals amount to a kind of fear mongering. And what, what might we take that to mean? I think the sense here, the idea here is that fear appeals elicit fear in circumstances where rational people ought not to be afraid. And some fear appeals definitely do this. So let's look at an example. Think of American television news coverage of violent crime in the 1990s. We saw a 600% increase in the 1990s in American network news stories on murder and worries about the rise of violent young super predators. You could see pundits on both sides of the aisle on cable news talking about this, famously Hillary Clinton. And all of this was happening as rates of violent crime were declining in America. And so that might be an example of a kind of fear-mongering. It relies on, on predictable forms of human bias. That if we see frequent news stories about violent crime and murder, we are going to overestimate how much violent crime and murder is actually happening. And we're going to prioritize our fear of violent crime and murder over other potentially more rational fears. And that fear may be being elicited from us 
to get us to do things like support tougher anti-crime legislation. But it's not clear that this is what's going on in a lot of climate change fear appeals. In the case of climate change, many of us are actually inclined to ignore or underestimate the risks posed by climate change. And the, reason for this is the reasons for this are complex, but some of our predictable human biases, cognitive biases, come into play. For example, the future effects of climate change, as I mentioned, are at least somewhat uncertain and certainly hotly contested. And when we are faced with uncertain outcomes, most of us tend to be overly optimistic about them tend to err on the side of it'll all work out in the end. We infer unreasonably optimistic outcomes. So this in turn may make climate change seem less grave, it may reduce our motivation to take action, it may lead us to take a wait and see approach. So at least the best climate change communication isn't trying to elicit or pump our cognitive biases like the 1990 television news coverage of violent crime. Climate change fear appeals at their best are trying to overcome to counteract some of our biases. They're trying to make us confront a problem more squarely, potentially even more rationally. So in this case, it could be that fear can be rational can correct for our biases. So for these reasons, I don't think the fear-mongering criticism is the best criticism of climate change fear appeals. Let's look at a second criticism, and this brings us back to Morgenthau. I think of him in my mind by a nickname as, as Morgie, and I, I just feel like that diminishes him a little bit, so I'm gonna, gonna try and always give his full name. He worried that fear appeals are inconsistent with democratic values. By scaring people, we close off deliberation and debate and the kind of healthy exchange about ideas and possibilities that is essential to a democratic culture. Fear appeals often seem to force a choice between succumbing to a terrible threat on the one hand and accepting the proposed means of averting the threat on another. So let's look again at an example. It always helps. So let's return to the one that preoccupied Morgenthau, McCarthyism. Joseph McCarthy and his followers presented Americans with a stark choice between collective destruction on the one hand and conformity to the demands of a Cold War security state on the other. A stark choice between being a communist and a traitor on the one hand and a patriotic American on the other. There was nothing in between. And there is no doubt that some climate change fear appeals do this. So for instance, there are certainly climate change fear appeals that present us with a stark choice between climate apocalypse on the one hand and degrowth or massive economic contraction on the other. And this apparently stark choice, as if there's nothing in between, gets periodically trotted out in the news media. But it's not clear that that's the way we have to talk about climate change. It's not clear that climate change fear appeals have to present us with those kinds of stark choices. It's just as possible to, prevent, to present people with a threatening outcome, on the one hand, and a whole range of options that they might take to avert it on the other. Like carbon taxes 
like green growth, like renewable energy investments, like environmental incentive programs, like bio and geoengineering. And just which option to choose should be subject to the usual kinds of elite and popular deliberation, debate, and discussion. And that seems to be what's going on in many sectors of the climate debate, that a whole range of options are being hotly contested and debated and evaluated. So I'm not convinced that the democratic worry is fatal to climate change fear appeals either. So let's move on to consider what I take to be the thorniest worry, that climate change fear appeals are counterproductive. And this forces us to confront a kind of classic political realist insight about the limits to even well-intentioned political actions. So in fact, there's quite a bit of empirical evidence it's not always the best evidence. Things could change. We could get more evidence. Where we stand now is there's a lot of evidence that suggests that while terrifying and apocalyptic images of climate destruction increase the salience of the threat of climate change, they also pro um, prompt people to feel powerless, fatalistic, and disengaged. People are inclined to conclude quite understandably, in my view, that any actions they take will be futile. Futile. They become paralyzed or even worse, resigned. I believe this is also a picture from my <laughs> home state gulping through the, the apocalypse. Um, in order to understand what's going on here, it's helpful to think about an area where appealing to fear is actually not counterproductive, where it's reasonably effective. So think about public health cases. Let's take the classic example of anti-smoking campaigns. Again, you can see many people in this room will have lived through the height of the anti-smoking um, campaigns, where we got horrific images of what can befall us if we continue smoking. And the one you see here is from Britain's Smoke-Free Action Campaign, um, that's been endorsed by the National Health Service. We can all think of similar examples that are meant to scare smokers with the prospects of lung cancer, emphysema, early death, poisoning your insides. So what's going on here, apart from a really gruesome image? Well, first, the smoking fear appeal conveys the sense that there's a severe threat to smokers. The threat is smoking-related disease and death. There's solid evidence to back that up. Second, the fear appeal conveys that smokers are susceptible to the threat. Let's think of those together as the threat dimension of the fear appeal. People feel a sense of threat when there's a genuine risk and when they're convinced they're susceptible to that risk. That's the threat side. Third, the fear appeal conveys that there are effective responses that smokers can take to avert the threat. They're available on the campaign's website. They include support groups, nicotine patches, doctor-supervised smoking secession um, programs. And fourth, the fear appeal conveys credibly that these responses are within the power of smokers to undertake. So let's think of three and four together as the efficacy dimension of the fear appeal. People feel a sense of efficacy, of agency, 
when there's a response that they can take to help them avert the threat, and that response is within their power. Now, scholars of risk communication suggest that these four features are jointly necessary for a fear appeal to work. That is, to motivate the recipient of the appeal to make the changes necessary to avert the threat. Now, let's compare this to what's going on in a climate change fear appeal. And so let's return to David Wallace Wells' book, The Uninhabitable Earth. I've put it on screen with an image that accompanied his earlier article by the same name in New York Magazine. Now, in some ways, I feel a bit bad picking on him. Anyone who's read the book knows it's a well-written book. It's thoughtful. He's clearly well-motivated. But that's part of what makes it a compelling example. He identifies a severe threat, global devastation that does and will result from a warmer world. He describes vividly, viscerally, floods, wildfires, dying oceans, food insecurity, plagues, and conflict. Second, he highlights our susceptibility to the threat. That's not a small achievement given that many of the worst effects of climate change will be felt by the global poor and by future generations, it can be hard to convey to us a sense of our susceptibility. And he does this by stressing the effects of climate change that already affect us, heat waves, hurricanes, ever more devastating wildfires. So his appeal ticks the threat boxes. Where it struggles is on the question of efficacy. And he's not alone in this. In terms of effective responses, he gestures vaguely at some familiar policy tools, a carbon tax, renewable energy, the classic moving away from dairy and beef, green energy. Um, he talks about this requiring us to make meaningful political noise, whatever that means. And it becomes even more vague when it comes to whether any of these responses are within his reader's power to undertake. There we just get invitations to think like one united people, to accept responsibility, but nothing terrible, not, not a really persuasive affirmation of our individual efficacy and agency. So why does this matter? It matters because our best models of fear appeals suggest that we can have two divergent responses when presented with a scary prospect. When a fear appeal convinces us there's a genuine threat, like the smoking one, and there's something we can do to take action to avert it, smoking cessation programs that are within our power, then we're more likely to take the actions necessary to avert the danger. Like, direct me to the nicotine patch aisle. I'm on it. But when the perceived threat is great and our sense of efficacy is weak, as is often the case with climate change, we're more likely to respond in counterproductive ways. Instead of averting the danger, we're going to try to control our fear. We're going to try to avoid thinking about the problem. We might impugn the messenger. We might accuse Wallace Wells, for instance, of dishonesty or manipulation. We might question whether the threat is really real. Or we might just become resigned to it. But I think criticisms can be productive. And together, these criticisms point us to the criteria that would have to be met if we're going to fear well about climate change we're going to scare people in the right way. 
we would have to do it in a way that doesn't monger fear that is hopefully as non-manipulative as possible we would have to do it in a way that's consistent with democratic and civic values supports deliberation and we'd have to do it in a way that elicits our sense of individual or collective agency and efficacy and that last criterion is going to be really hard i won't deny that fact and maybe we can talk about it more in the q a but i want to end on the question of whether we have any guides who might help us think about how to be better cultivators of fear and i think we do and i think it comes from an unlikely ancient source the greek philosopher aristotle offers what i think should be a really appealing model of civic fear he shows us what it me might mean what it might look like to fear well about climate change he recognizes that fear can sometimes be healthy particularly in cases where the threat we face is far off in time or in spatial distance because what is far off is not feared though it may still be dangerous in cases like this he suggests that leaders ought to bring distant dangers near in order that citizens may be on their guard and like sentinels in a night watch never relax their guard we need to bring the future to the present and we need to bring the distant home and in dealing with distant threats a leader should emphasize the evidence or signs that the threatening outcome will obtain they should make the outcome seem near at hand now so far what aristotle is saying affirms what a lot of climate change fear appeals already do they emphasize the harmful and destructive impacts of climate change that are likely to affect us and those with whom we have close ties and they they also draw attention to the observable evidence and signs of these outcomes happening right now they make the danger seem nearer at hand they stress its local impacts people in florida are probably subject to this messaging right now and the impacts it's likely to have on generations that are currently living but i think aristotle's next moves are what make his model of civic fear even more distinctive he recognizes that fear is a painful emotion it is accompanied by an expectation of experiencing some destructive misfortune and so a communicator a leader should expect that her audience is going to resist the fear appeal and aristotle's not just worried about complacency he's also worried about resignation and so to the resigned the purveyor of fear must offer hope and this is where i think it gets interesting for aristotle fear and hope are not opposed it is the hope that is associated with fear rather than fear itself that causes us to deliberate to think about what to do and so how do we elicit that hope at a minimum those trying to scare us have to offer us reason to think that it's possible as aristotle would put it to be saved from the agony from the threat because no one deliberates about hopeless things if you're sure that a threat is going to happen there's not much to do about it she must the a leader must portray an outcome as susceptible as responsive to human agency she must show us that it's within our particular power as individuals as members of a political collective 
to address the threat. Because we deliberate about what is in our power, what we can do. So fear and hope go together. And here Aristotle, way back writing in ancient Athens, anticipates what a lot of the empirical literature tells us. But he also goes beyond it. Because one thing the empirical literature stresses is that the best way to counter resignation is to propose actions that are easy for us to undertake. But facing our collective fears squarely, preparing ourselves to respond to them effectively, isn't always easy. In the case of climate change, it is really hard. The actions with the best hope for success involve massive coordinated political action. That's hard. It requires us to perhaps join political movements, to organize, to coordinate. And in order for us to be able to be prepared to meet our fears without resignation, to hope without complacency, to face the challenges that may be required to have effective responses, we will need to be imbued with a virtue to which Aristotle gives a lot of attention and to which a lot of the people working on climate change give very little attention, courage. So how might someone trying to communicate the threat of climate change elicit courage from us? One way is to invite us to consider how our actions will be remembered by future generations. And we've seen this before. Churchill relied on this technique as he, thought to, as he sought to steal Britons for the looming battle of Britain. Let us brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this is their finest hour. I think we can see the force of this appeal today even if some of us might reject its overt imperialism. Obama attempted a similar rhetorical move in the 2015 Paris Conference when he invited us to um, undertake the kind of action that would elicit pride from future generations when they look back and see what we did here. And they're doing something canny. There's a lot of empirical support for the effectiveness of getting people to think about their legacy and how they will be remembered that it actually really does motivate us to undertake difficult things. So even as we try to avoid engendering resignation, the purveyors of civic fear appeals maybe shouldn't hold back in inviting us to think about things we might have to do together that aren't easy. And they should think about how to steal us to face those threats with courage. So let me conclude briefly. Political fear is not popular. This is especially true now when the politics of fear become the currency of populist demagogues and authoritarians on both the right and the left. Now, the classic political realist Hans Morgenthau reluctantly turned to an apocalyptic politics of fear to rouse a complacent populist to confront the dangers of nuclear war, a danger that's still with us. And he offered a terrifying apocalyptic account of nuclear war as a self-defeating prophecy. He wanted us to imagine the worst in order to prevent it. 
and today's climate change activists have a similar intuition. they present us with apocalyptic images of the future of a warming climate to rouse us to action. so is there a good case for using fear in this way? i've suggested that there may be but fear appeals are going to have to meet a demanding set of criteria. to fear responsibly we should take our bearings from aristotle who shows us how to fear in a way that still makes room for hope, that elicits rather than extinguishes our sense of agency and effectiveness, and that invites rather than forecloses deliberation. I think that's a model of political fear that ought to be appealing to both moralists and realists. I think it's possible to fear well. I think it's possible to fear responsibly. And when the stakes are existential, perhaps we ought to. So thank you. Thank you for a stimulating presentation. Um, I wonder if you care to, shore, uh, sh to share your thoughts on two topics. <clears throat> um, what are your thoughts on Jared Diamond's premise that societal successes or failures are predicated more on ecological factors than cultural mores? Second question is, would you care to share our thoughts on the Danella Meadows et al. Club of Rome study, the publication of the Limits to Growth, and the subsequent publications and modeling on that topic, including following her untimely death in 2001? Thank you. Okay. Um I mean, I think the, the Jared Diamond line is interesting, and I think he marshals some compelling evidence for that thesis. Um, it is, if you care about human action and being able to achieve anything in the world and to mold and change the world, a bit of a depressing conclusion. Um, but maybe those who feel guilty that we're not doing enough, maybe it's a reassuring one. Um, maybe we are not the movers of the most important kinds of historical change. Um, so empirically, I think it's interesting. I don't think it's decisive. Psychologically, I do think we should be thinking about what the effects are of these narratives um, when, we, when we share them, whether, whether it's a good thing for people to think that they are powerless to change the world, that it's going to it's going to be just driven by ecological and material factors beyond our control. I'm not sure about that question. I think it's really hard. So I think there is a question about the ethics of circulating the diamond-type um, narratives, especially if we want people to feel a sense of efficacy, like something about their future is within their control. Um, I don't have any I don't have too many thoughts on the Club of Rome and limits to growth stuff except to say 
that for some, it's a powerful example of where fear was mongered, and the results haven't the the the, wor the feared results haven't obtained. Um, the, and it does point. Um, I mean, certainly we still have a growing population, but the problem, the the kind of uh, running out of resources that was predicted on a certain timeline by the people advancing that hypothesis has not happened as they as they threatened. Um, and there is a problem with fear appeals that we might call the, the boy who cried wolf problem, right? You scare people too often with things that you say are certain and they don't obtain. We were talking about this with the students. Um, and you're gonna get people who are maybe less and less receptive to fear appeals. And so I think one conclusion we came to in the, with the group of fellows today is you ought to be very careful and very judicious where you use them because you're only gonna get a couple chances to scare people into taking action. Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for being here. I have a question related to one of the slides that you had on Aristotle uh, that it mentioned leaders. And I'm just wondering if you believe or have any insight as to whether leaders have a duty to inspire us to fear responsibly, or if we should foster that within ourselves? Good. One, uh, that's a great question. One worry I sometimes have about Aristotle is despite being something of a democratic theorist, in passages like that he sounds really elitist. Like it's all up to leaders to either scare us or give us hope and to do it responsibly and that none of this falls on us. There are other passages, especially in the politics, where he actually talks about good responses to threat, relying on all of us who have different kind of specialties that may be helping to, I don't know, maybe the engineers in the group to engineer solutions to climate change, et cetera. So he does have a sense that the rest of us have something to do as well. But I, I guess I would kind of like to democratize uh, Aristotle a little bit here and to say, yeah, sure, our political leaders ought to feel a responsibility to cultivate fear and hope, for that matter, responsibly. And it falls to us to be very skeptical of their fear and hope appeals and to hold them accountable for doing it right or doing it poorly. Um, so I, I think it falls to all of us. I sometimes worry as a professor of political theory when our students talk about us and the state. And I wanna say, you know that's still us, right? <laughs> um, like especially in, we don't like to think that way. We like to think it's us and the government, but these are people, they're humans just like us. They are subject to the same problems, pathologies, hopes, aspirations that we are. Um, and they're gonna have face some particular problems because of the corrupting effects of power but they're still basically us. Um, and so I like to think we all have something to do here. I just wanna start by saying thank you so much. That was a very interesting talk. And I think especially in light of everything that's happened with the pandemic and climate change, it's very relevant. Um, I was wondering if you believe there should be different distinctions drawn between fear tactics used by political bodies and scientific bodies. So another way of kind of thinking of that, because these two different 
bodies of leaders in society have different purposes? Should they be considered on different moral planes? Where do their obligations differ? differ? Just anything along that. I'd be interested to hear what you would say. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And um, so one of the things that I was really struck by when the Wallace Wells book came out is, this, is the scientific criticism of it. Um, scientists said, and this is right, that Wallace Wells was, was talking as if only the worst case scenarios of climate change were going to happen, when actually there's a big kind of area of uncertainty about what the effects of climate change are going to be. And so scientists definitely thought the book doesn't pass muster as science, which suggests to me that there is at least an implicit kind of code of professional ethics that many scientists have. Now, at the same time, that gets them into trouble, right? And the, and the climate scientists are, are trying to reckon with this because they realize that the more they are honest about their uncertainty, which is consistent with what we might see as the scientific imperative to truth-seeking, the more they're honest about their uncertainty, the, mo the more the way they communicate about climate change is going to lead us to those predictable forms of human bias where when presented with uncertain findings, we tend to be overly optimistic, right? And that's not necessarily what they want. So scientists, I, I think, actually are, are some of the people really thinking about the ethics of communication here. I don't think they have it settled, but they think there are a particular set of professional norms that constrain their communication that are different from what politicians who are trying to make persuasive cases to us for certain policies might have, might face different norms. Um, at the same time, you know, you, you got scientists in the nuclear case, the scientists who worked on the atom bomb, feeling like maybe they had a duty beyond the research, beyond the truth seeking, to actually raise the alarm, like, hey, we've created something that is capable of, of annihilating people on a scale that was previously unimaginable. Um, and so I, I, I don't have a clear, I do think there are different ethical responsibilities that adhere to being a scientist versus being a politician. But I think scientists are still really working out what those should be for them, just as, as any of you have taken political ethics and leadership courses know, it's also unsettled in the case of, of politicians. Um, so I, I guess I would invite all of you, especially the students, to be thinking, thinking about those questions and whether we might be able to make some progress on them. I mean, after all, lawyers have clear professional codes, doctors have clear professional codes, pharmacists have clear professional codes. Could we do anything analogous for scientists and for politicians whose job nominally is at least to represent the electorate? Hi. Uh, what are your thoughts on um, the uh, impacts of uh, segregation as a society uh, on this fear problem that we have. Uh, for all of the history I've ever read, it's uh, individual ethnicities that are combating other ethnicities. But in the past 50 to 100 years, and it's escalating faster, we're becoming more of a multi-raced society as a species. 
do you think in 100 to 150 years we'll be more ethnically diverse that uh, it really won't matter like what your ethnicity or skin color or eye shapes are? I mean, I think we're certainly heading in that direction. But let me tell, like, the thing I worry about with fear appeals is not actually the question of um, racial or ethnic segregation or into integration. What I worry about in the case of fear appeals is more political segregation, political polarization. Um, that just as America is becoming potentially more racially and ethnically integrated, it seems to be right now becoming more politically polarized. And one of the powerful findings in this empirical research on how fear appeals work is that they work differently on Democrats and Republicans. Republicans are more likely to have that kind of boomerang effect where the fear appeal encourages resignation, disengagement, paralysis. They're more likely to have that than um, that effect than Democrats. And so I think what the... the um, segregation or polarization we should be really attuned to right now is political. And I think we have to be open to the fact that the strategies we use to communicate with Republicans, with Democrats, with independents for that matter, may look different. And that maybe the fear strategy if you're in a pro predominantly Republican district is one to avoid. Uh, maybe you want to focus there more on, on hope or some of the other emotions. Um, and so that's more the, <laughs> that's the kind of division in American society that I'm worried about when it comes to hope and fear. And I think the people trying to communicate this problem to us are communicating to us as if we're all the same. And we're not. Um, and so I think one, one of the things we're gonna see in the future is trying to target these, I hope, target these strategies a bit more to the audience that is in front of you. So you talk a bit about um, legacy appeals and how that works. So I was wondering, as generations go on, how do you think the effect of these fear appeals um, have an influence on what we as a people, as generations, remember about crises? Oh, that's really interesting. Um, I mean, it really depends. Um, think, of, think of one group that's really trying to pump legacy intuitions right now, and it's like Greta Thunberg and her ilk. And the way they do that is by being a movement of young people, right? A bunch of young people and sometimes children confronting predominantly older political actors, speaking in front of the UN and stuff, and thinking, you know, what are you doing for us? We're going to have to live with your mess, right? That's a way of pumping legacy intuition. So um, if, if there's a generation who thinks like that, who tried to scare the heck out of their elders and their elders did nothing, then the legacy of that may be anger, resentment. Um, so I think it really depends on the... It really depends on the outcome. But one thing I really worry about, I gotta say, is someone who, like I've given my best case here for fear appeals, and I hope what you take away is not that I think we should be doing it all the time, but actually there are a set of criteria that we ought to follow, and they're hard criteria to do it well, and we ought to be doing it rarely. One of the things I worry about about your generation is we've just scared the heck out of you about everything. 
about climate change and now you've got you know you've got a war where one party is threatening to use nuclear weapons against another one and we've scared the heck out of you about covid we've scared the heck out of you about your future economic prospects and i i think you guys too have a finite pool of worry and i don't know what you're going to do with all of that with all of that fear so again you 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 all are one reason we should also be very wary of fear tactics because if we keep doing it we will exhaust you and an exhausted citizenry is not a citizenry ready to do much about anything I want to thank you again for joining us today. I hope you'll join us again for another McDowell Institute program. Our next scheduled speaker is Roosevelt Montas, author of Rescuing Socrates, How the Great Books Changed My Life and Why They Matter for a New Generation. He will be with us on March 16th at 5 p.m. In the meantime, I hope you'll join us for a reception just outside the auditorium. And uh, buy all the books up, please, while you're there. Uh, First, though, please join me in thanking Dr. McQueen again. Thank you very much. Have a good and safe evening.